If you haven't been in the habit of being here on the Wednesday nights or with us upstairs on the Wednesday night, we're in the Gospel of Mark. And we're going chapter by chapter, so we're going to continue in chapter 7 of Mark. We'll do our Bible study, and then you have time at the end to be able to do your prayer time individually with somebody else. When you're done with the prayer time, then do your visiting out in the foyer. And uh, then if you have to pick up kids, the kids will be wrapping up here this evening at 8.15 is the time that they will be dismissed from the Calvary Clubs. But let's jump into Mark chapter 7 as we continue in our study as we're going through. Several years ago, I had the opportunity that um, I got one of those notices in the mail that that was those sweet notices that they invite you from the government to come and work. You know, come up to the courthouse, join a whole bunch of people, sit in the courthouse with several dozens of other people, and then they're going to ask you questions, and they're going to see if they can create a jury pool out of a number of these different people. Now, So I was so excited to go and spend the day there with the possibility of being called to do jury duty. And it's our civic duty. I understand that. And it's something that we should be willing to do. I understand that completely. And yet in in my heart, it's like, wait a minute, this could get something that could be convolu- you know, complicated, could be a period of time that could uh, take some uh, obligations. And yet I went up there and did what we're supposed to do, and they asked the questions. And the case that I got, that they, were, they had pulled out about 15 of the names, and then they said, okay, we're going to interview each one of you, and they would have them come up. And it was somebody who was involved with drunken driving in an accident and hurt somebody. And uh, they were asking the di- different individuals, do you have a problem with people drinking? Etc. 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 And so I was the next to the to the, the I was the next person in line to have to go up there and answer these questions. And all of a sudden, the lawyer said, "We've come to a conclusion. We're settled out of court." And so the case was done. And they gave me that notification. They with all the other people. They said, "Well, we don't need anybody. This is the last case. You can go home. We're not going to need you." I'm going to tell you, in all of my carnality and my sinful nature, I walked out relieved. Just thinking to myself, I'm glad I didn't get involved with with something like that. Some of you, you can write me the notes afterwards about how I should have been more civic-minded and been disappointed that I wasn't asked, but I wasn't. I was rejected, and I enjoyed being rejected at that moment. And so do you have that case? My wife had a case where she had an opportunity, and it was going to be a very involved situation where there was, if I recall right, there was... Um, somebody with, with you know, an attack that was made and things like that, and she wasn't uh, picked for that jury as well. And when she walked away, she was just as carnal as I was and just said, I'm glad I didn't get called to that type of jury. In that case, she liked being rejected as well. In Mark chapter 7, you have a situation where there's a lot of rejection going on. And it's really interesting where it comes up. Mark chapter 6, look at the end of the chapter. Jesus is ministering in that region in the northern part of Galilee. He, and it says in the last couple of verses of chapter 6 that everybody is flocking to Jesus. He's popular. They want to come. They want to see the healings. They want, to, they want to be able to touch his garments. And so at this moment, Jesus is the, you know, the celebrity of that region. And the crowd are coming to him, but chapter 7, all of a sudden, the writer wants us to understand that not everybody was excited about Jesus. And he starts off in chapter 7 with verse 1. He says and points out that Jesus had some people who were rejecting him. It came together, they came together unto him, the Pharisees, certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem. If you remember how it worked in the Bible days, if anybody came along preaching and saying that I'm giving truth, I'm speaking on God's behalf, it was the 
responsibility of the Sanhedrin, the Jews who were in Jerusalem, to send out different people to go and investigate, to find out if there was any validity to this person being a teacher, being a rabbi. And they were supposed to send two different groups at two different times that would go up and do an initial inquiry, and then they would go and send another group up that would do more interviewing with the individual. And so somewhere in that process, there are these Jewish leaders who are representing the administration, the official Jewish position. The individuals coming from Jerusalem. So you've got, you're supposed to have the highest of the scholars. You're supposed to have the ones investigating are going to be the hoi polloi of the Jewish religious element coming up and they're watching Jesus. They're watching what he's doing. They're watching and listening to what he is saying. They're taking notes. They're finding out, is he really true? Is he false? Is he contradicting himself? And so these people are coming up, but their mind has been made up. We have read about that in chapter 3, 4, and 5, that they made up their mind, and they already declared, in a sense, that he has been empowered by Satan. He is in league with Satan, and through the power of Beelzebub, he's casting out the devils. And so they've made an official statement, but they're still there watching. They're still gathering data about him that they can use if they ever haul him to trial at some day in the future. And that was their process. Jesus isn't unique. That was the process that they were supposed to follow in any circumstance. And so there's a group still there watching Jesus. They've already determined he's guilty. And so they look at the disciples. They're looking for something that they can find that's wrong with him. Look at what happens in verse 2. It goes on, And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread, which was with uh, defiled, that is to say, unwashed hands, they found, what does your Bible say? They found fault. Okay, they found something to criticize Jesus. Now, the reason that they're criticizing Jesus, he's not the one who isn't guilty of not washing his hands, but it's his disciples, the ones he's responsible for, the one he is training. Therefore, if his disciples are doing bad, by virtue of association, he's a lousy teacher. He's not controlling them, and so they're very critical. And what happens in this text is they have this conflict with Jesus. And Jesus has a conversation about that, their comments. And uh, what we have in the Gospel of Mark is a reaction by Jesus towards those who are rejecting him. By the end of the chapter, he very clearly rejects them. He is going to make it very clear to his disciples, these guys are no good. And he's going to warn about those types of religionists who are hypercritical. And so what happens in this text is you have some very interesting information that's going on and some of the the details. And basically what you've got going here is this. You've got the longest recorded account in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is talking about a conflict he's having with somebody else. In the next verse, if you look at verses 4 and 5, you can tell that this wasn't written to a Jewish audience. The writer is writing to, and we know it to be a Roman audience, and he's clarifying for the readers, here's why they were upset. And he tells them, here's Jewish custom. As you read in verse 4, or 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands often, they eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they don't eat. And many other things be, uh, there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups, pots, brazen vessels, and tables. That helps us out because we aren't Jewish and we wouldn't understand. And so the first century that got this this letter, they didn't know how Jews worked. They were probably of the Roman society. And so he's giving information. 
And in this information that he gives us, he is repeating a word that keeps on coming up. You read it as defiled or unwashen. But it keeps on coming up multiple times. It is that idea in Jewish mind of being unclean. Something that is unclean. Something that is corrupt. Something that is tainted spiritually and would taint the individual. And so that word shows up multiple times, starting with verses 2 all the way down through verse 23, giving us the idea that these Jewish people were very upset that Jesus and his disciples were doing something unclean. Now, it wasn't that they were eating non-kosher food. It was that they weren't washing their hands. Now, that to you and me, this, this passage kind of sounds odd. It sounds weird, because what do you tell your kids when they sit down at the table, or what do you ask them? Did you wash your hands? Okay. You know, well, one of the first things we always say is, you know, wash your hands, wash your hands. They're in a culture that they don't understand the germ idea. They're in a culture where they don't understand the hygiene. This has nothing to do with being clean and getting rid of germs. I mean, that, that's very modern history that people were worried about germs. I mean, even hospitals and doctors washing their hands. That is more recent history when you take the whole scope of human history. And so at this time, this has nothing to do with, you know, being cleansed. I mean, if these people saw how many of these hand dispensers of soap we have in our society, they would think we're nuts. Okay, that, that, they have nothing of that in their mindset. According to the Old Testament, you can pick up passages such as in Exodus chapter 30, verse 19. If you were to look up Exodus 40, verse 13. If you were to look up Leviticus chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. You would find that it is required that the priests are very careful of washing their hands when they are getting ready to enter into the tabernacle or into the temple. And in the Old Testament, it was the priests that had to make sure that they had this ceremonial washing so lest they were, they were unclean by contact with something, with anything, before they did their priestly duties. There is never in the Old Testament a command that says, you need to wash your hands before you sit down to eat. That wasn't there. That wasn't even in culturally, there wasn't you know, the simplicity of walking to a sink and washing hands. There was a passage, an extended passage about commoners in Leviticus chapter 15 where it talks about commoners like you and I that we needed to wash to be ceremonially clean in certain circumstances without being graphic or gross. There are certain things that required, if, if this happened, make sure you wash or you would be unclean. And it happened to do with body fluids, whether it be spittle or male or female fluids or excrement or any, any sore where there's a running pus or anything of those, those cases. Then... If you touched anything like that, you had to wash because you were ceremonially unclean. And there's prescriptions in that passage about you have to wash the furniture, you have to wash, wash the clothing, because that too would have been affected by the spit or the other bodily fluids. Outside of that, there's no indication in the law about this washing aspect. 
However, as time went by, the Jews are kicked out of their territory. They're out of their land in what we call the post-exilic era. Well, basically, the between the New and Old Testament. They lived outside the land for an extended period of time, and what happened is they were coming in contact with more and more Gentile society. They would live in Gentile neighborhoods. They would run into Gentiles in business. If they're exchanging money, now they're exchanging money with Gentiles. And so as time went by, they started developing different types of aspects of what could be unclean that would require us to wash. What could be on the level of bodily fluids? What could be something that would contaminate us? And so they started writing some of these down. And with these and other rules, they made a book that was called the Mishnah. The Mishnah was in addition to their Old Testament. It is the rule book explaining about all the different details, giving all the different exceptions or all the different occasions. Let me see if I can give you an illustration. It's not the same thing, different, but yet it's the same thing. Um, we read in the Bible about divorce, divorce, remarriage, and there's a, couple, there's a couple clauses in there. All of a sudden, we start asking, yeah, but what if, what about this case? What about if this person? What about this person? And we start asking all about the different, the different aspects of, well, what if it, this happened first or that happened? And all of a sudden, we, we get these questions that start developing around that whole issue, and the Bible doesn't give us all the specifics about every different case. And so they and their society had the same thing when it came to washing because to them, uncleanness was that big. It was huge because it would mean that you couldn't worship and it would, it would eliminate that opportunity to just go and pray at any time. And so they were starting, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And they asked all about the different occasions. And the writers and the preachers and the teachers of that day started writing down, well, here's how we see it. And they started writing and contributing to this Mishnah about different events, different occasions, such as the Jews who were living in, in Gentile communities. They wrote down that if you went out to the marketplace, you would have to wash when you went back, came back home before you sat down to eat. You make sure you wash your hands because you might have touched a Gentile out there. And if you touched a Gentile, you are ceremonially unclean. Or if you handled coins from a Gentile. Well, folk, think about coins. Somewhere, someplace, it's going to be touched by a variety of people in a, in a mixed community. And so they start writing down, and they wrote down rules in this Mishnah. How you wash your hands, whether you have an open hand or a closed hand. When is the fist? When do you let it drip off your elbow? Or when do you wipe off the, the water as you've, you're pouring it over? And so they spelled this all out. Now, what happened in time, by the time we get to Jesus' day, that Mishnah was looked at as equal to the Old Testament law, equal to Numbers, Leviticus, because it became such tradition. And, and, and you and I can be critical of tradition. We can say, you know, why do people do it? We are traditionalists if we're not careful. You sit in the same pews pretty much. Okay, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but you just get used to doing things a certain way. We run this service a certain way. We sing this song, this number of songs, then we do this, then we do this. And if we throw the order off in a service, some people are saying, oh man, something's wrong. I remember, I remember the one tradition that, we, that really stirred up several people here. When we had one of the staff baptize and not say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we purposely said, I baptize you in the name of Jesus, which is in Acts chapter 19. But oh my word, the baptism wasn't valid. Because we didn't say it the way Pastor Binkley used to always say it. 
We changed up the phrase, the phrase of it. And so we're, we can easily get into that tradition too. But that's what's happening in this text, is these people have, have gravitated to a tradition of washing hands, a rule that everybody was supposed to keep that now was equated to Scripture. That it was just as, according to rabbis, as important that you follow our regulations, our rules that we put and publish in Jerusalem, you better be following them. And it meant if you went to the marketplace and you came home, you wash your hands because otherwise if you touch something unclean and then you put some food in your mouth with that unclean hand, then all of a sudden you've brought impurities spiritually into your body and you're not walking with the Lord. Jesus and disciples did that. They come in and they're being watched and they didn't wash their hands before the meal. It had nothing to do with your hands were dirty. It had to do with ceremony, ritual, regulation. And the Pharisees got all uncorked about it. And so the response in the text is really interesting. As you go through... They come to Jesus, and they make a comment to Jesus. Verse 5, Why walk now thou disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but after, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And Jesus' response, he says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Jesus isn't going to back down. He just, he, he just responds, You bunch of hypocrites. And he goes on and says, As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. But laying aside the commandments of God, you hold tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things like that. Full well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoso curses his father and mother, let him die the death. But you say, if a man shall say to his father and mother, it is korban, that is to say it is a gift, by whatsoever you might be profited by, it, by me, he shall be free of providing for his parents. And you suffer him no more to do his obligation for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which you have delivered. And many such things do ye. And when he had called all the people unto him, he said, Hearken unto me, every one of you. Now, Jesus is, Jesus is, if I can put it this way, riled up. And he says, Hearken unto me, understand this. There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they which have already defiled the man. And if any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him, you go to Mark, uh, Matthew 15. And it says, the disciples say to him, you were a little bit too rough with the Pharisees. I'm paraphrasing it. But he says, the disciples say, you may have offended the Pharisees. And he basically says, what God hasn't planted, let it be rooted up. Referring to the Pharisees. That they're not part of God's family. God's brood. God's, and he says, Yo, let them be rooted up. He doesn't care. And then he goes on and makes this comment in both texts. Are you so without understanding do you not perceive that whatsoever thing from without enters into a man, it cannot defile him? Because it enters not into his heart, but into the belly. So you eat food, you digest it, and then your body gets rid of it. it you know, it, ex it expels it into the draught, purging all meats. And he goes on, he says, that which comes out of the man from the inside... He's not talking about bathroom at this point. He's talking about what comes out of... Matthew says what comes out of the mouth. Okay, and it clarifies. What comes out of the mouth is revealing what is in the... Do you remember? Yeah, that's what Matthew does. 
Matthew says, what comes out reveals what's in your heart. So Mark doesn't give all those details, but he says basically what comes out of a man, that's what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, etc., etc. And so Jesus and the the Pharisees are at odds over this one issue of what makes a person unclean. What makes a person defiled before God? And as a result of their, their refusal to listen to Jesus, he rejects them. At the bottom line is he says, you know, I want nothing to do with him. He calls them hypocrites. What was their mistake? What was it that they held to or they did, according to this text? I've, I've given you some of, the, some of the specifics. But what in a broad sense, what was their major, major mistake that resulted in them being rejected by Jesus Christ? I was excited. I was glad, I should say, or relieved that I was rejected by the jury pool. But I don't want to be rejected by Jesus Christ. That would not be exciting. That would not be you know, a relief. And in this text, there's a warning that says, okay, you and I need to avoid that which would get us rejected by Christ. What is that? For any individual, what is it? Okay, now, we're sitting here, we're born again, and we understand that we can't lose our salvation. I'm not referring to that. But I'm talking in a broader sense to a bigger audience than just saved people in general. What would cause Jesus Christ to reject any individual, to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you? Well, according to this text, there's two things. Two things that they made a mistake. They were religious, but they failed in two different areas. They failed, number one, to face their own sin or sinfulness. They just overlooked it, which was very common of the Pharisees, that they, who called themselves the gatekeepers. That was their nickname for themselves. They called them that in that day. They would write about them being gatekeepers with the idea that we are going to help at the judgment of God Almighty who can enter into the gate of heaven because we're so good, because we know so much things spiritually. And so though they were very religious, they would not deal with their own sin or their own sinfulness. That's the debate in this text. That's the conflict that they have, is these individuals are saying that, that sin is not because of something we have done or something we are, but sin is because of individuals not following our rules and regulations. And they've laid it out, that if you're good, if you're, if you're following our rules, you're pure, you're okay. But if you don't wash your hands by doing something with religion and doing some ritual or regulation, then you're okay. And so they're not admitting that from the heart is the problem. By the way, this problem of this sin is something we all have. It's something that he says in this text. Every one of us has the problem of in our heart. There is the issue of evil thoughts. There is the issue of the illicit thoughts, the fornications, the adulteries. In all of us, there is that murderous spirit that might say, I hate somebody, I don't like somebody, as defined in Matthew chapter 5. In our hearts, there are the thefts, the covetousness, the deceit, the lasciviousness, the blasphemy, the pride, the foolishness, the wanting to do our own way, our own thing, rather than following the word of God. In our heart are those evil things that come from within. We understand that. We know that. That the word of God says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But that wasn't what the Pharisees would admit. They wouldn't say that we fall in that category. They would say, Yes, you who aren't like us fall in the category, but we're above that. And so that's typical of a religious person. 
who is so fixed and focused on being right with all these regulations, these rituals, these regulations that's there, that they would exalt themselves. Basically, they avoid the problem that we all have. They don't admit that it's in the heart. They try to look and cover it up. They cover it up with ritualism. Religious people refuse to face up to these things, and they cover up their own sinfulness with the idea of changing the focus from the heart to the outward. You know, we're, we're in Christianity. We have the same thing happening in Christendom, if you would, in the broad spe- specter of Christendom, where all of a sudden the issues become uh, whether you're baptized or not, become whether you can say catechism or not, or whether or not you have you know, given monies to the church and somebody's monitoring that and somebody is seeing if you know certain creeds or certain rules and you can say those things and you follow them or you light so many candles and there's the ritualism that covers up the idea of where real sinfulness is, that it's within our hearts, that every one of us has to deal with. Religious people, one of the, one of the difficulties, they cover up their own sin by comparing themselves with other people. And by the way, once you start comparing yourself with other individuals, you can always find somebody who's worse than you. You can always find that. We can always exalt ourselves by finding somebody who's not as good in the outward as we are. And that was very typical of these individuals. And Jesus is trying to deal with that and saying, listen, you need to stop. You just need to stop with this, and this is wrong. And then he comes very harshly saying to them, as we already read in the text in verse 6, you hypocrites. And he's pointed with them and he's saying, you honor me, but you're far from me in your heart. He's, he's getting very, very blunt with them, saying that you and I are not on the same page because you haven't dealt with the aspect that you are a sinner. As a sinner from what's inside, you are already tainted. You have already become unclean because you I, we have those thoughts. We have those intents. Do you want to see when they could come out? They can come out in some of our more ugly moments. Or they come out with people who are really good and godly folk, and all of a sudden if they lose the ability to be able to control their mouth or their sensibilities because of, let's, let's say, age. Have you heard of accounts of even good people all of a sudden coming to the point in a point of dementia that all of a sudden they become very vulgar? Where did that come from? It's from the heart. That's what we all battle with. That's what we all struggle with. But the Pharisees don't want to admit it. And let's be frank. You and I better admit this of ourselves. If we don't admit that we do have a spiritual problem inside, we own it. It's ours. If we don't face up to that, we are hypocritical. We could face rejection by Christ. We could be one of those who at the seat where, well, Lord, have not I done all these good things? I have cast out demons. I have done this and I have done that. And he turns and says, depart from me, you workers of your own ways. I never knew you. There's only one way to handle this, and that is the relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not through rituals. It's not through church activities. It's through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Their second biggest mistake is that they fail to follow God's Word. It goes hand in hand. People who don't want to face to the, up to their own sin and sinfulness usually fail to follow God's Word. He, they do it in a process here. What happens as you go through is verses 7 and 8 talk about how they have replaced the Word of God 
we've already alluded to it, how they've, how they've already added to it. But in reality, he is saying to that, you're, you're replacing it. You have made your, your rules for cleansing equal to the word of God. I've explained that historically. Look at how Jesus talks about it and what he says about it. He makes the comment in verse 7. You are teaching for doctrines. You're saying it's a doctrine, but actually it's a what? It's a commandment of men. You've replaced the word of God. Where he makes in the next statement, for laying aside the commandment of God. By the way, the next word is emphatic in the original. You. He's very pointy, very blunt. He says, for laying aside the commandment to God, you keep on over and over and over again. Very emphatic in the original language. You keep on holding to traditions of men. What have they done? They have replaced the word of God. Then what they did in their next level of not following the word of God is they reinterpret God's word. In reinterpreting God's word, we read about in verse 10, that he says, the Bible says, honor your father and mother. And whosoever curses his father and mother. This is coming from Exodus 12. You're very familiar with that. Or Exodus 20, excuse me. You're very familiar with the passage. You remember in, in Deuteronomy where it talks about if you curse your parents, you should be slain for that. The Jews of that era and even of the New Testament era, they understood that part of, of respecting your parents, honoring your parents, and caring for your parents wasn't just in childhood, but it was carried all the way up into, as an adult, you provide care for your elderly parents. Do you remember in 1 Timothy 5.8? If any man provide not for those of his own household, he is worse than... Okay, so that concept was very commonly accepted in those days, that when it comes to, to, uh, to uh, respect for parents... It continued in how you deal with them when they're elderly. Here's what the Jews did. Now, in the Old Testament, you have passages that show up in, in texts about giving gifts to God. There are several that show up, like Leviticus 27, 28. You have the same thing in Numbers 18, 14 that warns that if you have given a gift to God, you make sure what you have given to God, it gets to God. There's the warning that this is you know, the firstling of your flock. It belongs to God, very emphatic, that, they, that if you give a gift... You make sure you give a gift, okay, that it stays there. In fact, that's that same mindset. When Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, that you present what? Your body a what? A living sacrifice. The idea is you don't take it back off the altar. That would be more understood from the Jewish concept than what we do today. Because today, do we have in our society people making promises and then pulling back financially? Does that ever happen in sports? They ever sign contracts and then void the contract? Okay, they, that happened. That didn't happen as much in some of the ancient societies as it is today. And so what they did is they had this concept that, okay, you make a gift, it stays there. But during that intertestamental period in the Mishnah, and by the time of Jesus Christ, some of the Pharisees were making good money. And they were wondering about, okay, these gifts that we were to give to God, one of the things that will help us to show ourselves to be really spiritual in public is not just do the routine, but what did they do when it came to giving gifts? He refers to it about the idea of giving alms. That they will go in the street place and they make sure that their gifts are rattling in the horn so that everybody knows how much they give. And so that mindset wasn't just what you give, but make sure everybody knows you're giving. 
And then you're really spiritual. So they devised something that doesn't sound so odd in our society, but it was strange for that society. They devised a way that what you could give is you could give to the Lord, to the Lord's work, monies, big amount of monies, when you die. You could give it to the temple. Now, you and I say, well, people do that in estate planning now. Back in those days, this was very, very unusual. And so what they did is they developed what's called korban. Korban would be, I could keep and use my money, whatever you know, that may be. Say I'm a wealthy Jew, Jew of the Old Testament era at that time, and I've got you know, savings of half a million dollars. And I want to say, I'm going to give a gift. And I can come to the temple and I can say, I'm giving a half million dollar gift to the temple. And everybody goes, ooh, wow. Or others would say, that's not, I'm going to do a million. Great. Okay. Um, But you you would do that. And then I could claim korban. Korban meaning a gift to God in the Hebrew. What I could do is say, it will go to God upon my death. I can still use the money for myself. But it's, you know, it's korban. That is, it's going to God. And as a result, I could keep control of the money. I could take care of me and what I wanted. But it would relieve me of other obligations that might take away some of my money. One of the obligations being taking care of elderly parents. And the, because I would say to my elderly parents, oh, okay, Deb, you're my elderly mother. Um, you, you feel like it, I know what days. Um, I would say, sorry, Mom, my money's korban. Okay, you're on your own, lady. And I wouldn't have obligation because I have done a more spiritual calling. I am giving all my money to the temple one day. I can live and enjoy it myself, but I don't have to meet this obligation because I korban. By the way, korban was very, very important in Jewish society. If you korban your money, you couldn't get out of it really easily. Let's say, Leon, you korban all of your, your money, and then Anne says, honey, we need to unkorban it. You could unkorban if you paid the temple 50 shekels for that korban. The average income per year was the two shekels. So you give me 25 years worth of your income. Then the temple would release you. So this was a pretty, this is a pretty, for a woman, a woman could do it, your wife could do it cheaper. She could get away with 30 shekel payment. And so, so this, was, this was a pretty big deal if you korbaned your money. And you couldn't back away from it. And your family, you, you would, don't have to do my duty towards other people. And Jesus is saying, you guys, you take the word of God and you just add these rules and you reinterpret things and you twist things. A gift for God that, yes, you make, if you make a gift, promise gift, you better, you know, better it is to not vow than to vow and not pay. You twist that and then you all of a sudden get, get so you don't have to fulfill other responsibilities. You're, you're manipulating the word of God. And he condemns them for it. He says, you bunch of hypocrites. You don't, don't you understand that you were obligated by God to take care of your parents. And you're going by the letter of the law. And he rebukes them greatly. And, and, he, go, and he ends up, look at the end of verse 11. He says, you're doing it for one reason. That you might profit by yourself. That this is all about you and your money. 
And then he concludes, he says, you're basically rejecting the word of God. Here's what you've done. You rejected the word of God. Look at verse 9, the word. He says, full well you reject the commandments of God. Look what he says in verse 13. Making the word of God of none effect. The word none effect is breaking the contract. You have nullified the contract. You have nullified your agreement, literally. Is that you have made these major, major mistakes, you, you, you hypocrites. You Pharisees, you have set up a system where you do not deal with your own sinfulness and you are rejecting, you are failing to follow the word of God. Those are their major mistakes. And he condemns them for it and he says you're rejected. You are, you are far from me. He, con- he condemns them in, Mar- in Matthew chapter 15. You, you've been uprooted by God and stay uprooted. And he tells his disciples, as I mentioned before, I don't really care. They are, ju- they are outside of God's, of God's working. God's harvesting in their heart. They're just, they're rejected. They have made some other minor mistakes. Now, most everybody here has not made that mistake. And I would challenge if you have never dealt with your own sinfulness, that you look, examine your own heart like the rest of us have had to. If you are struggling with following the word of God, you need to stop and say, I cannot follow that pattern that these guys did or I will face rejection by Christ. There's another factor here that's a minor, uh, the, the secondary mistake they made, they made, and that was with involved with their hypocrisy that I want to just pause on for a second and just to clarify on something. Oftentimes when we get into these texts and we talk about the Pharisees, people will run at this text and say, oh, oh, oh. It's, you know, anybody, anybody in this, according to this text, anybody who has any kind of rules or regulations, therefore, they're like the hypocrites. Uh, we just recently, I was visiting one of our members who they were in a medical facility, and while they were there, somebody came by and said, oh, yeah, we, don't we know you from Faith Baptist Church? Faith Baptist Church, la-da-da-da-da, yeah, I used to go there, but I hated all the legalism of Faith Baptist Church. Because they kept on saying there's rules that if you didn't follow these rules, you aren't saved. You didn't follow their their standards, you couldn't be a Christian. We have never said that. We have never said that. But we have been accused many a day over legalism. Okay, This text reveals to me the real legalism of the New Testament. This is where it developed out of, the Pharisees. Can I give you a description from this text of what is real biblical legalism? Biblical legalism is not having standards. Anybody who has standards, therefore they're a legalist. Folk, everywhere you go, there are rules. Yes, no? You can't even go to a restaurant and do your own thing in the restaurant and stay in there. You're You're going to get kicked out. There's rules about procedure and and there's you know some of you work jobs do they ever have any standards of attire for your workplace oh then they must be really legalistic no they just have a standard okay having a standard is not the same as legalism in our day many people want to jump on that and they say well because they want to do their own thing here is what biblical legalism or hypocrisy is, according to this text, as you illustrate. Let me just describe it and see if this isn't true if you compare Scripture with Scripture. The people who are the real hypocrites, legalists, are people who often focus on the outside as opposed to the inner man. That's a truism, yes? They focus on the outside rather than the inner man. And now all the legalists would say, you make sure you do this, 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 you get your hair 
in a certain bun. Um, you have to wear certain length of the sleeve, da-da-da-da-da-da. And we don't worry and focus about your heart attitude, but we're all worried about your attire. That is a form of legalism. That is an over, you know, if I go through this room and say, you better dress like me, you three guys are a bunch of bums. Okay. You, you know it, that's, that's true. Okay, Lou knows that. Okay, at least he said it. Okay. That, that's, there is this, the stretch for bib, what is biblical legalism. Let, let me take a step number two. People who often add rules, rituals, and regulations not required by God, but held as mandatory in order to be godly. Okay? There's the key. There's the rub. Rules, regulations, rituals, you have to do them in order to be godly. Okay? There, you know, we might have rules and regulations, but the difference is, do you have to do them in order to be godly? That, that, and I'm going to repeat it the same thing, number three. People who claim adherence to their rules and regulations is necessary to be acceptable before God. Let's, let's talk about clothing standards. When I was in college, we used to have clothing standards. Do they have any at colleges now? Okay, they do. Does that mean that the school is a legalistic school? Just because they say, when you come to school, to classes, we want you to wear a certain attire. That may not be having anything to do. It could be legalism. It could have nothing to do other than we just want to have some type of, some type of a standard for the class to prevent some extremism one way or the other. If we have a dress standard, and that, 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 that's not a problem. But if we say the only ones who are spiritual are those who wear a tie, that's legalism. It has nothing to do with wearing the tie, whether we do it or not. But if this becomes a point of spirituality, then that becomes legalism. Legal, and to keep it simple, legalism is, okay, if you ever jeans or anything denim, you cannot be godly. Do some people say that? They do. They do. If you wear a shoe that has an open-toe shoe, you are not saved. Me? I know how to solve that. Don't wear shoes. Just, you know, go barefoot. That would be mine. If we make those standards... All of a sudden, that determines if you're saved. That's legalism. Okay? And so that's in this text. This is what they were doing. Number four, people who tend to look at their personal standards and applications as equal with Scripture, then that's, that's, a, that's a legalist. That what standards we have, we have a standard that we just say basically when we have, uh, you know, attire for here, that we say, okay, certain, certain attire that's worn in the service. We don't say that it's a point of spirituality. We just say it is a point of uniformity for, for uh, you know, uh, appearance sake. And we don't say it, thus saith the Lord. In fact, because we don't say it, thus saith the Lord, could those standards change in time based on what's more adaptable in culture? Sure, sure. I remember when I first got saved, when I first got saved, I was under a legalistic type of a situation for a period of time, and it was stated, if you wear wire rim glasses, you're not, you know, you're not godly. If you have any facial hair, for the men, okay, if you have any facial hair, you're not spiritual. Okay. 
Now, I've, I also was in some really good ministries that, that said, hey, let's just not have facial hair just because of presentation. That's fine. But when you start making it a standard, by the way, um, did those standards change over a period of time? Facial hair is far more, except for men, is far more accepted and any more... Do you, do, you, do you get non-wire rim glasses? You know, I can't find any for me. Okay, so... so the issue is, what do you do with your standards? And here, number five, let me finish this out. People who often judge others by these additional rules and regulations, they usually make themselves the top end of the spectrum. That's, the, that's a characteristic of legalism. They're the standard. They're at the top of this, of this spectrum. Number six, people who often judge others too quickly without full information and an open mind to scriptures. Number seven, they are primarily negative towards others, mostly looking for and at what others are doing wrong, coming against Jesus and his disciples without discussion, but right away, he's wrong, they're wrong. Okay, we want to be careful of that. Okay? People who often do not personally live up to the original spirit and intent of God's word. That's a classical case here in this text of legalism of hypocrisy, that you and I want to avoid even the hints of that and not get into... And, and by the way, any one of these, we can easily start going down the path. So we want to be careful that, that, that we're cautious, <clears throat> that, that we're not even you know, broaching some of that. Two major mistakes, not, not dealing with the sin and sinfulness and not following the Word of God, but these minor mistakes as well that, that resulted in them getting rejected by Jesus Christ. And you and I have to just stop and say, wait a minute, we need to face up. Where are we in this text? Is this descriptive of me? Am I role-playing? Am I following the word? Am I really dealing with sin? There's, anybody here of John Philip Sousa? Anybody know who he is? Okay. He's a conductor. Did he write music? Yeah, yeah. Wrote a bunch of songs. He had a grandson by the name of John Philip Sousa. And when this grandson got to be a young adult, he was invited real quickly because he was the grandson of the famous composer and orchestra lead, he was invited to start leading some orchestras. So for the first few years of his life, in his career, he was leading orchestras. He did this for a period of time until he said he couldn't deal with the hypocrisy anymore. And he fessed up that he couldn't read a note of music. But he was living off of his dad's reputation. But he himself couldn't do it. And, it, he, you know, and he admitted this was wrong, and I was, I was pulling the wool over people's eyes, if you would. And so he had to deal with it. But he said it was very hard to come face-to-face to face with that. And to admit, because it, made, it meant changing much of his life. You and I need to stop and say, okay, and I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to, yeah, that most of you have a desire to follow God's word. Most of you have dealt with facing your own sinfulness. Most of us are trying not to be legalistic. We don't want to. But I stopped today and said, now wait a minute, do I show any tendencies at times of just moving towards that direction? And it's hard to admit that maybe at times I'm hypercritical. Maybe at times my, at my standards you know, is the way that I judge people. If they're not like me, if they don't comb their tuft the way I comb my tuft, well, I don't even comb it. But, you know, and so it's so careful. Can I ask you three, three questions just to examine your own heart real quickly? 
Am I focused? You ask yourself this. Am I focused on doing Christian religion or building a relationship with Christ? There's a huge difference. Religion and relationship. Secondly, do I allow for any of those offensive tendencies of the hypocrites? Do I allow for any of the offensive tendencies of the hypocrites? Am I striving for genuine purity within or substituting outward deeds that everyone can see? 